absolutely wonderful. You ever do anything dumb? Look, look at my brother over here. <laughs> you know of anybody that's ever done anything dumb? Raise your hand, Steve. Yeah. Point, point. Sometimes you can kick yourself. I take, Sharon and I, we go with my mom and my brother out leaf looking. Okay, that's what we call it. And I found out some of you call it that too. Look at the beautiful colors. Mom and Steve are up here. They don't get anywhere near this kind of color uh, down in Louisiana. So I was thrilled that they were able to come up this time of year. And we were all too happy to take them out looking at the fall colors. And you, you know what I've learned? You don't have to go outside this county to find beautiful fall colors. I mean, right here. Just just drive around Kittle Road, Mount Time Road, and Fairview, and, you know, just it's, it's just gorgeous. So we were out locally here, and we're driving down some dirt road, and, you know, sometimes I don't even know where we are, but we always end up somewhere. And we're down this road, and there's this apple tree laden with apples outgrowing. On, you know, got a little ditch, and it's on the other side of the ditch. And it's just, you know, picture-perfect fall postcard. This, this apple tree laden with apples and the fall colors and a beautiful pasture behind it. And, you know, we don't have apples. I don't, I don't, you don't have apple trees down there, do you? Or not to speak of, anyway. So we're passing by that apple tree, and my, and my brother says, stop, stop, pull the car over. And, you know, n- nobody on that road at all. I just pull the car over. He said, Let, let's go get some apples. So, so, so I, I watch Steve, and he's reaching up trying to grab apples. And I think, well, I'm going to go help him. So I get out, and Sharon gets out, and we're out there just, you know, when, when Steve and I get together, we revert back to being 13 years old. <laughs> Any of you get with your brothers, and you become 13 again? Some of you know what I'm talking about. And we become 13. So this is dumb. I get under the tree, and there's this big limb laden with apples. Big apples, not the little apples. I'm talking big apples. And I tell Steve, I said, this is dumb. I'll shake it. I'm standing under it. I said, I'll shake it and you pick up the apples. And one of them rascals, the second, I'm still having a problem. I don't know what's going on with this thing. Big old apple. As I look up, I'm shaking it and I go to look up and I go, Right there on my, it's amazing I don't have a busted lip this morning. That thing hurt. That thing hurt bad. I looked over to my brother for sympathy. He's laughing his head off, as only a brother would do. And then I look over at Sharon, and she's still laughing. Because <laughs> I'm going, oh, 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 that hurt. <laughs> don't stand under the limb you're shaking. You know, moral, moral of the story, big, big mistake. But uh, we had a good time, and uh, it's a beautiful time of year. We're blessed to be able to live up here. We're in a series on Sunday morning entitled The Real Jesus, and we are in search of the real Jesus. And that's, inc- that's important, that's critical, because we are in a society where there is ever-increasing confusion and misunderstanding as to who Jesus really is. And that can be a problem, because folks, if you get Jesus wrong, it has both temporal consequences and, more seriously, eternal consequences. If you get Jesus wrong and you, therefore, reject who he really is, 
The temporal consequences are the consequences that you have in this life. You, you miss the blessings. You miss out on the joy that Jesus brings. The purpose and the direction that he gives your life, the hope and the help that he gives you when you go through trials, you miss all of that in this life if you get Jesus wrong. But it also has eternal consequences, not not just temporal consequences, eternal consequences. Because if you get Jesus wrong and you do not understand that he is God in the flesh, that he went to the cross, that he paid for your sins, and he will save you from your sins based on his sacrifice if you will simply believe, if you will simply trust. If you don't get that, if you don't embrace that, if you don't believe that, then you are destined for eternity in hell. And when you wake up in hell, so to speak, you're not going to get a second chance. You're not going to be able to negotiate. You're not going to be able to plea bargain. Those are serious consequences. It is important that we get Jesus right. You say, well, pastor, doesn't everybody get Jesus right? Isn't that just a given? No. I want to focus your attention this morning on a George Barna survey. George Barna is probably the uh, most influential, uh, well-respected Christian pollster. I mean, when he wants to know what people think, he doesn't guess, he polls them. And if you poll enough people, you know, in the thousands, which is what he does, you have a representation of what people believe as a whole. And last year, he did a poll of Americans to see what Americans believe about Jesus. And we want to look at several of those results. Number one, he determined... The vast majority of Americans believe Jesus was a real person. Well, that's good news. He concluded, and I'm reading from his poll, more than 9 out of 10 adults say Jesus Christ was a real person who actually lived. In fact, 92%. While the percentages dipped slightly among younger generations, only 87% of the millennials agree that Jesus actually lived. Now, who are the millennials? The millennials are uh, young people uh, that were born between 1982 and 2002. So as you um, poll the younger generation, less of them believe that Jesus actually existed or believe that he was a man that once walked on this earth. Well, the good news is, though, that 92% of Americans believe that Jesus was real. But then it starts getting very problematic. It is not enough to believe that Jesus was real. It is extremely important what you believe about Jesus. And here, the results are very problematic. Because we see, number two, that younger generations are increasingly less likely to believe Jesus was God. The younger you poll people, the less likely they are to believe that Jesus was God. Now, you talk about having eternal consequences If you don't believe Jesus was God, you're going to spend eternity in hell. And I hate to say that. I hate even using the word hell. It's not a popular word today. But i got to be honest with you. i got to be truthful with you. If you don't believe Jesus was God in the flesh, if you reject that, if you have a hard time accepting that, there are going to be eternal consequences. The historicity of Jesus may not be in question for most Americans. In other words, most Americans will agree that, yeah, there's no doubt he existed. But people are much less confident in the divinity of Jesus. Most adults, not quite 6 in 10, 
believed Jesus was God, about 56%. While about one quarter say he was only a religious or spiritual leader like Muhammad or Buddha. The remaining one in six say they aren't sure whether Jesus was divine or not. But listen to this. Millennials are the only generation among whom fewer than half believe Jesus was God. You go around to the high schools and the college campuses today, less than half of those young people believe that Jesus was God. I think we can say to a great degree, the teaching of evolution in schools today has done more to undermine that than just about anything else I can imagine. We need to understand that. That's going to have serious ramifications on those young people temporally, that is in this life, and eternally. But then it gets even more disconcerting. Again, good news. Americans believe that Jesus existed. Bad news. Most of the younger people believe that he wasn't God. Then we see next, Americans are divided on whether Jesus was sinless. About half of Americans agree, either strongly or somewhat, that while he lived on earth, Jesus Christ was human and committed sins like other people. That's a problem, folks. That's a real problem. Because if, if he was a sinner, when he died, he, paid, you know, he was trying to pay for his sin. He, he did not have the ability to, as a perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, to pay for other people's sins. There's real problems there. Similar to other trends and perceptions of Jesus, millennials are more likely to believe Jesus committed sins while he was on earth. 56% of the millennials, most of the young people that you come into contact with, according to this poll, which I have no reason to doubt, believe that Jesus was a sinner. That has such serious ramifications. Then how can you believe his word? How can you believe what he taught? How can you believe what he said about himself if he was a sinner? Maybe what he was saying was lies. Maybe what he was saying was untrue. Maybe he was playing us. Maybe he was deceived himself. You know, it raises such serious ramifications as, as to what you believe. And that's exactly what Satan wants us to think. But then we come to this. People are conflicted between Jesus and good deeds as the way to heaven. Well, that's a serious mistake, folks. Overall, roughly two out of five Americans have confessed their sinfulness and professed faith in Christ. Millennials are less likely to believe that Jesus is the path to heaven than are other generations. Among millennials who have made a personal commitment to Jesus, only 56% say they believe they will go to heaven because they have confessed their sins and accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. In other words, an ever-increasing number of people, especially among young people, believe that you have to trust Christ plus you have to do good works. And what you're saying then is Christ's sacrifice was not sufficient. It was incomplete. I have to contribute to that. We have nothing to contribute. That's a problem because we're just sinners. So when I talk about in search of the real Jesus, some people might think, well, that's a wasted topic because we know who the real Jesus is. Well, maybe you do. But as we see, and especially among younger generations, they do not. So how can we know the truth? How can we know the truth? Pretty much 9 out of 10 Americans, 92% of Americans believe that he lived. But how how can we know the truth about that man? 
if, if it has these temporal ramifications, if it has these eternal ramifications, well, wouldn't it be great if we had at least documents from the time he lived? Wouldn't that be wonderful? We, we, we can't have video from 2,000 years ago. You know, We can't have pictures from 2,000 years ago. The one thing we could have from 2,000 years ago would be documents, written accounts. Wouldn't it be wonderful, wouldn't it be great if we had uh, recorded eyewitness accounts of his life? Now, now, Pastor, now that I could buy into. If we had some recordings of, of people that, that lived, that, that saw him, that saw the miracles, that, that talked to him, that, that saw the empty tomb, that, that would be great. Wouldn't it be great if, if those accounts then could be verified as, as trustworthy, they could be scrutinized, they could be examined even by skeptics, and you could not find falsehood in them. Boy, Pastor, if we had something like that, if we had documented accounts of eyewitnesses and contemporaries of Jesus, then I would believe what they said about Jesus because they saw him. You know where I'm going, huh? How about a whole book? Will that work for you? Well, I don't, well, now wait a minute. Now that I didn't think you were going there. You got it, folks. You got it. And as I said last week, and it bears repeating today, the only reason the reason people will reject Christ will reject His word is the same reason a thief won't look for a policeman. He don't want to find him. And there's lost people that don't want to find the truth. Don't want to, they are so into themselves, they are so proud, they are so arrogant that they will reject the truth. In this book of many documents, documents put together over several thousand years, documents that do not contradict one another, doc, documents that harmonize perfectly, even though written by men who did not know one another, were not contemporary with one another. It makes this document all the more miraculous and all the more trustworthy. In this document, we have one letter that we're focusing on this month that was written by a contemporary of Jesus, met Jesus on the road to Damascus in a very miraculous way, and he wrote a letter to the Colossians. And uh, Paul went from being a critic of Christians to being... Greatly used of God. Maybe the man most greatly used of God in the history of the world. He used to hate Christians. He used to hate Christianity. But he came to the reality of the truth that Jesus was real. Jesus loved him. And he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. And he became a preacher. He became a minister. He won people to the Lord. He organized them in churches. And he cared about those churches. And he got word that a church in Colossae, which is a town in northern Greece, a church that he had never been to, he got word that they were having problems because people were disputing about Jesus. There were people there that were making false accusations about Jesus, so they too were in search of the real Jesus. So Epaphras, who was a part of that church, a minister in that church, he goes and finds Paul who is in prison. He says, Paul, here's what's going on. There's, there's some people there, uh, you know, introducing false notions about Jesus and false teachings about Jesus and they're, they're, they're buying it and they're falling for it. And Paul, you need to write them and you need to set them straight on Jesus. And that's what we have in the book of Colossians. We have Paul addressing a group of people 
and wanting them to make sure because of the temporal and the eternal consequences, wanted to make sure that they knew the real Jesus. Now, last week in chapter 2, we looked at verses 1 through 3, and we learned some very important truths the last two weeks. For he said in chapter 2, verse number 1, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, and whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I, I said that wrong. That's, that's not from last week. That is this week's message. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Those three verses that I just read are so rich, and especially verse number 3 that we're going to get to in a second. And again, understand what Paul is doing. Paul cares about these people. It is important for Paul that the people in Colossae get it right about Jesus. It is very important that they not be influenced in ways that will draw them away from the real Jesus, as is happening today through our public school system and the teaching of evolution and what goes on in so many of the the, the documentaries that you see these days that are purporting, you know, that evolution is, is factual. Well, in fact, at best, it is a theory and a theory only, which can be, you know, easily disproven. So Paul is concerned about those people. So he writes them this letter and he says three important things in verses 1, 2, and 3. Three things that you and I, even though we're 2,000 years later, can profit from. So important were the words that Paul wrote to the Colossians back then that God, I really believe, divinely preserved those words. And we have them today so that we too can be ministered to from the Apostle Paul 2,000 years later. I want us to look at these three things real quick this morning. Number one, you're going to see in these three verses, Paul had great concern for the Christians in Colossae and Laodicea. He says in verse number one, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. These are people, as he has just stated, these are people in churches that he had never met face to face. But he was concerned about false doctrine coming into their churches. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, in chapter 2, In verse number 4, we get a hint. In this letter, he says, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Beguile, that means to trick or lead astray. He says, I'm going to say what I'm going to say because there can be people that are trying to lead you away from the truth. And then in verse number 8, he says to them, Beware. Lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men. After the rudiments of the world. And not after Christ. So in verse number 4, he's acknowledging that he's writing them because there's people trying to smooth talk them into believing things that aren't true. And in verse number 8, he's emphasizing that again. He says, beware. 
that men may spoil you, ruin you, and all they're using is their philosophy. It is just vain deceit. It is after the tradition of men. It's after the rudiments of the world. It is not from Christ. And then in verse number 18, he says again, Let no man beguile you of your reward in the voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. They're wanting to bring angel worship into this. Intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. There are people that are proud, that are arrogant, that are puffed up in their fleshly minds, that are teaching you things that are absolutely not true. So the Apostle Paul is concerned about them. And understand this, it is the primary responsibility of any pastor worth his salt to make sure that people stay faithful to the truth of God's Word. It doesn't matter what's popular out there. It doesn't matter what is trending out there. It doesn't matter what every other church in America is doing. What matters is what this book says. And it was Paul's responsibility to keep them focused on the Word of God. It is my responsibility to keep you focused on the Word of God. Paul was very much aware of compromise that was coming into the church. He was aware of the fact that they had become sloppy in their theology. But he is acknowledging there is to be no consideration of any teaching that is contrary to Scripture. Whether people get upset with you or not, whether it is popular or not, or as the Bible says, whether it is in season or not, it doesn't matter. Now, when you take a stand for God's Word, the world's not going to like it. Compromising liberal churches aren't going to appreciate it. But we're simply going to take the same stand that the Apostle Paul took. And it's his responsibility. It was was Paul's responsibility then. It is my responsibility now to be sensitive to any misinformation that is out there, to warn you against it, and keep you focused on the real Jesus. Which brings us to point number two. Paul wanted the people in the churches to experience the blessings of unity. One of the wonderful things about getting doctrine right is it brings people together. There was a movement a while back, a few years ago, that said doctrine was divisive. And so they minimized doctrine. Well, that opens the floodgate to false doctrine. No, just the opposite is true. Doctrine unifies. Understanding true Bible teaching, that's what doctrine means. Doctrine means teaching. When we come together and we understand this is God's Word and the te- this is the teachings of God's Word, we can all be in agreement on that. That is unifying. Paul was concerned that the false doctrine coming into their church would split that church up. One of the great benefits of being a part of a church is being a part of a group of people that love one another, that care about one another, that are unified, where there's harmony and love. Listen to what he says in verse number 2. <clears throat> That their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love. That's what Paul wanted for this church. That's what I want for my old Baptist church. Being knit together in love unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding. To the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. So at the beginning of that sentence, he is saying, I want you to be knit together in love. And what is key there? Understanding. Understanding. 
The acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of Father and of Christ. Understanding who God is. Understanding the Father. Understanding Christ. That is the emphasis. We're not brought together primarily by social concerns or to be a social club or to just, you know, come together to make business deals or just because we happen to get along with one another. That's not the reason. We come together in an understanding of the acknowledgement of the mystery of God. He wanted them to be unified. He wanted them to be knit together. He wanted them to have the riches that come with the understanding of the mystery of who Christ was in God. He says... Unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. Let me share this quote with you from the Bible commentary of Matthew Henry. He says, It was their spiritual welfare about which he was solicitous. He does not say that they may be healthy and merry and rich and great and prosperous, but that their hearts may be comforted. Note, the prosperity of the soul is the best prosperity. And what we should be most solicitous about for ourselves and others, we have here a description of soul prosperity. Paul, in verse number 2, isn't concerned about how popular they are. He isn't concerned about how wealthy they are. He isn't concerned about how accepted they are. He is concerned about them having an understanding of God the Father, of Jesus Christ. And that is the greatest understanding, that is the greatest benefit that we can have. Soul prosperity. Another quote from Matthew Henry. When our knowledge grows to an understanding of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, when we have come to have a more clear, distinct, methodological methodological, uh, knowledge of the truth as in Jesus, then the soul prospers. Foremost in your concerns in this world should not be outward prosperity. Oh, it's, it's, it's fine to have goals. It's fine to work hard. It's fine to be blessed. God gives you a nice car, a nice house, or whatever. But I've known of people, and you've known of people, perhaps especially public fig, uh, figures like movie stars, TV personalities, sometimes sports stars, I mean, that commit suicide, that, that live miserable lives, that are miserable alcoholics, miserable drug addicts, and they got every toy in the world. But they're miserable because they don't experience soul prosperity. You know, an understanding of who God is, an understanding of who Christ is. Because when you get that right, all that other stuff ceases to be so important. Because you have found where true peace truly lies. Which leads us lastly to point number three. Paul explained a phenomenal truth about who Jesus is. We read some some statistics a while ago that said 92% of people believe that there is, you know, that Jesus existed, but it's greatly divided as to whether he was sinless and whether he was God in the flesh. Paul explained in verse number 3, now listen to this, folks. This is profound. This could change the way you live. Talking about Christ, talking about God, he says, in whom are hid 
all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. It's not in popularity. It's not in power. It's not even in good health. Wisdom and knowledge, the treasures, the value of wisdom and knowledge are hid in Christ. Now, is that evident in your life? Do you have a genuine daily appreciation of that and a pursuit of those treasures? People that come back this afternoon are pursuing those treasures. People that are in their Bible in the morning for their daily devotion or in the evening for their evening devotion are pursuing those treasures. People that are on their knees in prayer to God are pursuing those treasures. Does that, am I describing you or not? Don't, don't answer. If that's not describing you, you got some growing to do, and I hope you will. It's in Him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And when you get wisdom and knowledge, folks, you don't need anything else. When you have wisdom and knowledge, you're, you're there. You, you're at peace. You, you have purpose. You have an understanding that unsaved people, lost people, or sadly backslidden Christians don't have. Let me share with you a number of quotes right here. And the reason I'm giving you all these quotes is from the biblical illustrators. They say it better than I could, so I'm just going to quote it. Wisdom does not consist in wide and varied knowledge. A student may be a walking encyclopedia and yet be far from being a wise man. Wisdom is the practical application of knowledge. The attainment of the highest moral results by the best means. Let me read that one again. Wisdom is the practical application of knowledge. The attainment of the highest moral results by the best means. Next, the cry of the human intellect in all ages is for wisdom. The greatest souls have toiled for it and failed. It is a divine revelation. The world by wisdom knew not God, using the world's wisdom. The wisdom which all need is found only in Christ. In Him, the mind finds its truest stimulus and healthiest impulse. It is the, he is the fosterer and guide of all wise intellectual pursuits. It is in the countries where he is known and worshipped that literature and science exercise their widest sway. He emancipates the mind from the bondage of corruption and fear and as the wisdom of God hallows all wisdom. Again, verse 3 says, In him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Those treasures are described as hidden because they are hidden from an unbelieving world, from the unassisted intellect, the intellect that does not have the Holy Spirit to help, and are said to be hidden because the preaching of the cross is always foolishness to the world. Luke ten twenty one. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Those that walk the hallowed halls of Michigan, University of Michigan, or I'll throw LSU in there too, they're in pursuit of wisdom. 
And yet you will see that they come up with the craziest things, the craziest ideas. It is hidden from them in that you have to know Jesus Christ to find it. You have to be assisted by the Holy Spirit, which he gives you in order to understand it and appreciate it. God has chose, chosen to reveal it to the simple and the humble of heart. If you are proud, you'll never know that wisdom. State capitals are filled with proud men, sadly, today. Not all, but many. Universities are overflowing with proud people. Not all, but the vast majority. And we're experiencing the temporal consequences of that in our society today. Understand, in Jesus are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's right there. It's right there for you. I started to say, it's like apples hanging from a tree, you know. All you got to do is pick them. Don't don't shake them. Hit you in the head. It's there. If we can go away with an appreciation of this, you're much more likely to be back this afternoon because you're in pursuit of that. You're much more likely to get up and read your Bible in the morning because you've got this, this treasure, this treasure trove. Oh, there's people with mansions and all the toys and the fast cars and garages with 30 vintage cars and every race car, and they are miserable. You have treasure far greater than that that gives you peace. Lastly, are we then desirous of attaining these heavenly treasures? Boy, that's a good question. You've heard it this morning. Now, is it going to change your life? Or is it going to be business as usual? Are we then desirous of attaining these heavenly treasures? Let us seek after them in the Holy Scriptures. And whilst we seek for knowledge as silver and search for it as hid treasures, let us cry to God for it and lift up our voice to Him. Since it is the Lord alone that giveth wisdom, and out of His mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. The best part of your week ought to be in church. Hearing a Sunday school teacher teach you a Bible lesson that is unpackaging those treasures. Here it is. You don't have to be confused about this any longer. Here is the truth. You you don't have to worry any longer. Here is the truth. Here is wisdom. You, You don't have to fear. You don't have to fret. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to doubt. Sunday school teachers unpacking that. Teachers of the children's ministries on Wednesday night, unpacking that for children. On Wednesday nights right now, unpacking revelation, the treasures that come there, the wisdom that you attain. It means that on a daily basis, the best part of your day is your time in the Bible and in prayer. I recommend the morning, but it can be any time. It could be in the evening. And you have the privilege of unpacking the most wonderful treasures. Wisdom and understanding that you will not get anywhere else. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed as we stand, please.